Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna, listener-supported public radio for the central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. We've got a lot of interesting interviews and news today, so let's just get started with beer news. Kenai River Brewing Company has shifted to its winter hours. The brewery is now closed on Mondays and is open for Sunday brunch from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Tuesday through Saturday hours remain noon to 8 p.m. On Friday, October 13th, the Boots and Brews Beer Fest will be held in Pioneer Park in Fairbanks. Attractions include live music, the Busted Boot Pageant, a brewer dunk tank, and more. First sip is at 5 p.m., and general admission begins at 6. Tickets are available online. On September 8th, Midnight Sun Brewing celebrated the return of termination dust to the Chugach Peaks with the 2023 release of its Belgian-style barley wine, Termination Dust, on draft and in 12-ounce bottles. Termination dust is aged in bourbon barrels for 11 months and is a bold, layered barley wine with a complex malt profile. Multiple Belgian yeast strains create an intense tasting experience, one that warms you up with every sip. Seward Brewing Company closed for the season on September 13th. The Mighty Monster Boo Fest will take place at the State Fairgrounds in Palmer on October 28th. Doors open at 6 p.m. with live music from I Like Robots at 7 p.m. and a costume contest at 8. Tickets are $40 for drinkers and $10 for designated drivers and are available online. On September 21st, Homer Brewing Company celebrated its 27th anniversary of operation. The winning beers at the Great American Beer Fest were announced on September 23rd in Denver, Colorado. This competition is the nation's largest professional beer competition, with its medals being globally acknowledged as an emblem of brewing excellence and among the most sought-after accolades within the brewing community. There were 9,268 commercial brewery entries from all 50 states, plus Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico. 303 beers earned bronze, silver, or gold medals. None of this year's winners were brewed in Alaska. 
That's it for Beer News. Up next, we'll have an interview with Jake Wolgenbach, the man behind Naptown Brewing in Sterling, Alaska. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. Food is a great connector, and each week on our show, we bring you stories that exemplify the ways food can connect us to each other and our communities, from serious issues like mental health, sustainability, and food waste on one hand, to the really practical things like getting the best tortillas or learning to forage for food. Food is at the center of all of our conversations. That's The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. Noon Saturdays on KDLL. Jake, how are you doing, sir? Doing good, Bill. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on. So you guys have been open, what, about six months now, right? Yep, just a little bit over six months. That's great. Right. So how are things going? Things are going great. Uh, I would say even better than uh, anticipated. The, the community support has been uh, phenomenal. And the, yeah, we're just we're having fun and uh, really grateful for everyone who walks through the doors. Well, things should be starting to slow down a little bit now that the uh, the summer's over. Are you guys planning to adjust your winter hours at all? Or are you going to stick with what you've been doing? Yeah, we've seen the uh, the slowdown the last uh, couple of weeks for sure. With the one barrel system, as we talked about last time, uh, that that's been the limitations. You know, that's that's why we have the hours that we have. But we should be able to add another day. So we'll be eventually adding a, a Sunday. So that's that's what we're working towards pretty hard right now. So then that'll get us uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday as our opening days. Cool. During the summer, you guys had a lot of food trucks and stuff there. That I assume that's gonna not going to continue in the winter either. You know, we, we do have uh, the food truck now. It's called Kenai Bowl and Roll. Um, you know, his name is Travis. He's a He's a great, uh, great find. He does plan on being open every day. We're open through the winter, so he will winterize and oh, we'll that's have cool. his, uh, Japanese cuisine available. So, Excellent. yeah, we're pretty happy about that. Cool, cool. So I know uh, you guys went out and got yourself a full beverage dispensary license. So have you taken, I know part of that was driven by wanting to serve wine. Part of it was driven by wanting to have like TVs and stuff. So have you taken any steps in uh, that direction? You know, the, the, the basis for getting the BD was, you know, with the location and, and the building we have, uh, we want to host, you know, plenty of events. Matter of fact, we have one coming up, a Halloween event at the end of October on 27th, Friday, but the licensing allows us to host events. You know, we like the live music. We've been having, you know, uh, live music every weekend. And yeah, we, we I think we will move toward putting a TV here and maybe football Sundays or, or something along those lines. Or we still have plenty to discuss. Yeah, it just gives us the freedom that, that we want, you know, the, the business model that we're going for. So. So that one barrel system, I know you've got expansion plans. Are they firmed up yet or where are you going with that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know you don't uh, want to keep brewing every other day on that one barrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we absolutely have expansion plans. That's uh, that's our priority. Now that the summer madness is, is over with, you know, we're kind of shifting towards, you know, our plan there. So yeah, we, we are thinking something along the lines of a 15 barrel and a, a building extension that would, would go on, on our current building. 
to be able to house, you know, that, that footprint, um, possibly some tap room extension into that new building as well. Yeah, we're in, we're in preliminary stages, a lot of quotes, uh, a lot of drawings. We do have, do have some structural stuff back, but uh, it's going to be a long road. You know how that is. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. So I guess I'm like, I would say you're not planning on actually breaking ground on anything before next summer? Yeah, we, we could. I'd like to break ground somewhere, uh, you know, maybe maybe a year from now, roughly. But uh, it's, it's just hard to say at, at this time. There's a lot of moving parts with this. No, no, I know. I just, like you say, what's your what's your goal? And then you, you live with what you get. So Absolutely. So. Have you got any uh, new beers in the offing? Yeah, so uh, actually we've had a, a few lately. Um, I've got a, a couple new hazies. I, we released a an apple uh, wheat. We brewed with some mold spices, cinnamon, things like that. So it's kind of a harvest, a fall harvest type beer. Um, and then next month we do have our uh, fest beer, our October fest coming out. So looking forward to that. She's probably three or four weeks along in the lagering process right now. So, and then this weekend, actually, we'll have a new stout on on tap. So excited about that. What style of stout is it? Dry Irish or uh, something else? Uh, this is American stout. American stout? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Sounds good. So anything else of interest going on? I think about covered it. You know, I mean, right now our focus is getting geared up for, for the winter and, uh, you know, starting to plan ahead for the expansion and things like that and you know events for for next year but um this uh this halloween event has has kind of got our attention you know um does it have a name yeah it's called uh brews and booze and uh the a couple of local realtor groups so tk real estate and the property sisters both hosting that we will have live music with eric Dusset and dayton williams and there'll be some giveaways um, some food trucks, and yeah, it'll be it'll be a good time. Sounds like it. Are you guys going to be able to make another appearance at the Frozen River Fest in February? Oh, we we plan on being there, Bill. You uh, <laughs> you bet, we'll be there. Good, good. Well, I know you guys did real well at the last one. I don't think we have a choice but to to go defend our title. So yeah, you can count on us being there. Super. Well, hey, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, look forward to seeing the events there at the brewery. And we'll look forward to you guys getting your expansion plans off the ground. Absolutely. And I'll I'll keep you posted with any updates. Okay. Appreciate it. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Storytelling is back. Join True Tales Told Live Friday, October 13th at The Goods in Soldatna. Participants tell a true story live with no notes on the night's theme, Lucked Out. Gather at 6, order food by 6.15. Storytelling starts at 6.30. For more information or to sign up to tell a story, contact Jenny at info at kdll.org. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Up next, this month's feature on seasonal brewing. 
No, this isn't another rant about pumpkin spiced brews or the sad fact that brewing and distribution schedules mean that certain beer styles now have only the vaguest link to the season when they were traditionally brewed. I'm not talking about seasonal beers, I'm talking about seasonal brewing. Prior to the advent of electricity and other technologies, necessity dictated that brewing be relegated to certain times of the year. Access to ingredients and the need for nature to provide adequate brewing and lagering temperatures demanded that brewing was done in either the spring, where beers could be aged or lagered often in caves, allowing for temperature control despite the weather above ground, or in fall, when the cooling weather and the end of the harvest brought ample ingredients and time to brew. Let's take a look at the biggest beer festival of them all, Oktoberfest. The traditional beers served at this fall festival fall into a style known as Marzen's. If you know German, you know that Marzen translates to March beers. What does this spring month have to do with the beginning of fall? In 1553, the Bavarian Duke Albrecht V issued a decree that made it illegal for brewing in Bavaria between April 23rd and September 24th the time of year that would be too warm for brewing without risking spoiled beer due to bacterial infection. This meant that brewers ramped up production in March to have enough beer to make it through the next five months. March beers were brewed stronger and lagered, so they would keep throughout the summer. One of the reasons for Oktoberfest's popularity was that it marked, more or less, the restart of the brewing season and provided a good excuse for drinking up all the marzen left over from the spring. The seasonal nature of brewing prior to the advent of modern technology was a major driving factor in the evolution of what we think of today as seasonal beers. Strong beers like barley wine and old ales required much more malted barley to produce, meaning they could only be made when that ingredient was plentiful, i.e. in the late fall or early winter after the harvest came in. Traditional summer beers such as Hefeweizen's and wit beers were made to be consumed very fresh before the inevitable bacterial spoilage set in. The list goes on. One of the driving forces behind the development of brewing technology was the growing popularity of lager beers during the second half of the 19th century, especially the Pilsner style. Brewing these beers required fermenting and storage temperatures in the mid-30 degrees Fahrenheit range, which could be difficult to achieve outside of winter in many parts of the world. Ice houses that stored ice harvested from local lakes provided some extension of the brewing season, but this was expensive and unreliable. As a historical aside, one of the revenue sources of the Russia-Alaska Company prior to the U.S. purchase of Alaska was harvesting ice from a lake near Sitka and sending it via sailing vessel to breweries in San Francisco. With the demand for Pilsners growing, brewers around the world were eager for some means to free themselves from the tyranny of the seasons. The man who came to their rescue was a Bavarian, Karl von Lind. Around 1870, Lind, a professor at a university in Munich, began to research refrigeration. Lind's first refrigeration system used dimethyl ether as the refrigerant and was built for the Spaten Brewery in 1873. He quickly moved on to develop more reliable ammonia-based cycles. 
These were early examples of vapor compression refrigeration machines, and ammonia is still in wide use as a refrigerant in industrial applications. With the creation of reliable refrigeration technologies, large breweries around the world were finally able to brew and lager beer regardless of local temperatures. Coupled to the discoveries made by Louis Pasteur at about the same time regarding the spoilage of beer and the effectiveness of heating the beer to prevent this, the process we today know as pasteurization, beer could now be produced year-round and stored for much longer periods. This in turn led to the rise of the so-called beer barons, the creators of the giant brewing concerns we still live with today, like Anheuser-Busch, Miller & Coors. Here in Alaska, we still have seasonal breweries. Unlike the seasonal breweries of 200 years ago, our brewers aren't hampered by temperatures that get too warm. No, their problems start when temperatures get too cold. 49th State Brewing Company in Healy is a good example. Located just outside Denali National Park, the area sees over a million visitors in a typical summer season. However, during the winter, the population of Healy is tiny and temperatures can fall to below minus 50 degrees. So like most of the business in that area, 49th State closes its doors in late September and reopens in late April, coincidentally mirroring the dates of the decree of Duke Albrecht, but in reverse. Back in 2012, the brewery decided to make a virtue of the necessity of shutting down. Just before closing for winter, they filled every fermenter with beer that could benefit from a long, cold lagering and then turned the heat down to just above freezing. This was their hibernation series of beers, which were first released upon the brewery's reopening in April 2013 to wide acclaim. Other breweries in Alaska observe the seasons also, though the season they focus on is the tourist season. Seward Brewing Company only operates from early May to mid-September when it can count on plenty of tourists from the frequent cruise ship arrivals. Skagway Brewing is unusual in that it operates year-round, though with much reduced hours in the winter. Denali Brewing also keeps its beer garden and restaurant open year-round in Talkeetna. I find it strangely comforting that even in the 21st century, here in Alaska, brewing still has to pay attention to the seasons. It is nice that we still maintain a connection to past brewing traditions that many other regions lost long ago. So the next time you order a seasonal beer, be it an Oktoberfest Marzen or something that tastes like an alcoholic pumpkin pie, remember that once upon a time, people didn't drink those beers every fall by choice. They drank them because it was what they had. Up next, we'll have an interview with Lee Ellis, the Chief of Brewing Operations for Midnight Sun Brewing. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Kenai Peninsula Trout Unlimited presents the International Fly Fishing Film Festival, Monday, October 9th, at Main Street Tap and Grill in Kenai, with the film festival, silent auction, and two-timing trout ale from Kenai River Brewing on tap. Doors open at 5 p.m. with the film starting at 6. Tickets available at the door. More information at Trout Unlimited Kenai Peninsula Chapter on Facebook. 
Hello, and welcome to the Veritas Variety Review with your co-host, Will Burnett. Bringing you a myriad of music spawning from the depths of subpopular music's underbelly. Every other Saturday at 7pm. Tune in, and you may be shocked to hear something new and extreme from all over the world. Lee Ellis, the Chief of Brewing Operations at Midnight Sun Brewing Company, and I think Lee, former president of the Brewers Guild of Alaska? No. Still, oh, still? still president. Still got, another, still got another year and a half at her. Oh, man. Keep, keep carrying that, wear that crown of thorns for a while. How are you doing, Lee? Doing pretty good, Bill. It's a beautiful September, and it's uh, multi-lager beer season. My favorite. Yeah? Okay. What's new at uh, Midnight Sun? What do you want to brag on for everybody? Jeez, I don't know. I just got back to work after being out hunting for the last four or five weeks out in the wilderness. So uh, I'm trying to figure out what we got going on here <laughs> right now. Uh, yeah, we just released Termination Dust, uh, I think, first or second week of September. So we got that out and uh, was starting to hit the shelves now. Always, always one of my favorite releases. Uh, one of my favorite beers of all time that we brew, and you know, have some have some funny stories around my household of uh, people and my family getting a little too excited about the release and having some rough uh, rough days the next day. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've yeah, had. A, I was pretty- I was lucky enough to score a bottle of it uh, last week, I think, and I've been I tried it, and this year's release is excellent. Uh, very nice flavor to it. Yeah, and we're actually uh, we're working on getting some packaging right now. We're going to do some uh, vertical releases this year, uh, some of our barrel-aged beers. So we'll be putting those out around the holiday season because um, we have a pretty fairly deep cellar. Um, I mean, we have Arctic Devil going back to 1999. So we, we like to hang on to stuff, pull stuff aside, and then put it out in the future. And, uh, yeah, so I'm excited about that. And then we, uh, we released our Oktoberfest beer, again this year, which is probably one of my top five favorite beers that we make. And man, a lot of breweries are putting out some great fest beers. And I am extraordinarily thankful that the age of pumpkin beers has <laughs> faded. And and we have all now started moving towards making delicious Oktoberfest style lagers. It's one of my favorite styles. And boy, it's awesome to try everybody's different interpretation on it. So no trickster this year, huh? No, I, I will. I will. I will put it at a hundred percent. We will never brew Trickster again, which is funny because I actually really like that beer. I think that was one of my favorite Belgian pails I've had in my life. Yeah. But uh, uh, tr- you know, yeah. treat maybe we may do it again sometime. But uh, you know, we'll see. So. Well, I just had a can of uh, your new uh, triple boreal. We got some yeah. of that down here, and I had uh, I had one of those last night, and I thought that was quite good as well. So you guys are, you guys oh, are putting out some pretty cool new stuff here. You know, we worked with our distributor and, and um, decided this year that we wanted to come out with uh, seasonally rotating Belgians. Just we really like making Belgian styles. It's something we've been doing for you know twenty years now, and mm-hmm. and uh, we wanted to kind of break out of our kind of traditional three styles that we make year round and decided to start exploring that area a little bit more and and uh, yeah it's fun we 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 uh, the brewers here really just enjoy those styles so we're pretty stoked to 
to have uh, seasonally rotating Belgians out now. Uh, the other one I had uh, not that long ago of yours that I was really impressed with was uh, Manic. So oh. uh, double Pilsner, I think you called it or whatever. Um, yeah. You know, I, yeah. I could drink that. That stuff was pretty good. So had had a bit of a yeah. bit of a kick when you go through a twenty two ounce bottle of it by yourself, but uh, you know it was yeah. it, it went down real easy. It's funny because you know it's not the first time we've put out like a uh, a highly hot imperial pilsner, and sometimes we folks who are used to more traditional style lagers uh, will try them and and uh, have have some. Uh, <laughs> Have some strong feelings about uh, dry hopped loggers. Uh, little buyers, but remorse. we really like them. Oh yeah, like uh, it, it's you know it's one of those beers that you brew, and man, half the people that drink it think it's just amazing, and then half the people say, "What the hell did you do to this beer?" Hmm. So it's kind of a, it's a funny style, and it's always a risk when you do it. Um, but you know that's that's part of being a brewer is you brew beers you want to brew and. You know, sometimes everyone loves them. Sometimes some people love them. So it's like it's like sour beers. You know, we always get yeah. requests to brew more sours, and and I'll tell you about half the world. If there was never a sour beer again, they wouldn't mind. So, uh, so yeah, I think it's a great style. I think it turned out right. really well. I'm that way about so, I'm that way about brat beers. I love anything with yeah. brat in it, and uh, I know there's a whole class of people out there that absolutely loathe it. You know, so. That's yeah. okay. That's more oh, yeah. for me. More for me to drink. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we, we laugh about it because we had put out this beer called Double Cocked, which was a, a double dry hop uh, Vienna lager. Oh, that was probably about 10 years ago. And uh, some people just loved it. And then we what, got. What was the name on it again? It's called Double Cocked. So we did a double decoction dry okay. hop Vienna, Imperial Vienna lager. Yeah. And it was just more of a beer that we brewed because um, it was just a kind of like teaching, you know, we had some younger brewers on staff at the time and Mm. it was like going through the decoction process because you learn a lot about uh, barley when you do a decoction mass because you're really, you know, you can go through and explain why you're doing these different steps in your mash and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a super educative process. And then again, we, we thought the beer was pretty good, but we definitely received some fairly harsh <laughs> critiques on uh, dry hopping a Vienna lager. So, uh, yeah, you know, this was the, it's, the, it's the fun of doing it. Well, that's right. So, if, you, if you can't kick over the apple cart every once in a while, what's the point of playing? Yeah, yeah. 100%. Okay, so hey, put take your uh, take your brewer's hat off for a second. Put your uh, president's uh, stovepipe on, and uh, how are we doing with getting the new regs out and everything for supposedly the first uh, of January when we're gonna we're all gonna move off to the glorious promised land of new beer rules? Yeah, actually, the regs project is going better than expected. I've had to dedicate. A pretty significant amount of my time uh, working as part of a small stakeholder advisory group to AMCO. So we've been, the ABC board has been meeting almost monthly to go over new regulations. Most of the regulations are complete. There's one last section that was very time consuming, somewhat contentious, and it was to do with trade practice regulations. 
Alaska currently does not have any trade practice regulations and federal laws are not enforced on trade practices in the the state of Alaska. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a big fundamental change to the industry. You know, there was always a lot of discussion during the uh, legislative process about what this meant for breweries and hours and all this other kind of thing. But there was some other stuff in there that, you know, when you're now a regulations nerd like me, um, that's a pretty big change to the industry. And one of the biggest challenges that small craft breweries face in the state of Alaska is inaccessibility to the market. Um, So a lot of these trade practices uh, that are going to come in are going to allow a lot more opportunity for smaller brewers to get their, their product into the market. So, you know, we're, we're fighting a big battle against people who own shelf space and own tap handles. And those kind of activities won't be allowed anymore. Yes. And with, without having to purchase our way into the market and instead being able to earn our way into the market through relationships and quality products. I'm hopeful that Alaska will definitely start catching up with the rest of the country as far as draft selection and uh, improved accessibility for local brewers on the shelf. Well, I'm glad that that I'm glad you're involved in that because, as you say, that's definitely been a very uh, a uh, an area where Alaska has been deficient, very deficient, and at least for the. 20 years that I've been up here compared, like you say, to the rest of the country where uh, the stuff people pull up here, as you, you know, as you say, it's against federal law, but if nobody will enforce it, then why shouldn't they do it? I mean, they, yeah. they can. Well, there's, so. yeah, there's this, there's this, what we call the uh, penultimate clause in the CFRs regarding trade practices with alcohol. And that penultimate clause basically states that if the state has not adopted rules regarding sales of uh, malt-based beverages, so beer, then all federal laws are not enforceable in that state. Mm-hmm. So without any sort of, uh, you know, Alaska statute or regulation regarding trade practices, the federal government has no authority to enforce those rules. So it's, it's the wild west and it's been interesting, uh, meeting with some other stakeholders. Um, one of them in particular is new to the state and just could not believe what the state allowed. And these are things that, you know, most consumers are completely unaware of. Right. Um, but obviously those of us in the industry are, are, um, acutely aware of. So it's, uh, I, I, like I said, I think it's, you know, we have these guiding principles for adopting these trade practices that they, Lee, they I, can follow federal law. And, oh, sorry. Take a second, and, and I know what you're talking about when you say trade practices, but I'm thinking that maybe our listeners don't. So why don't you give a yeah. couple of examples? You can, you can scratch the names off, but give a couple of examples of the sort of stuff that you're talking about that's currently happening that should be outlawed under the new rules. I can give a bit of a roundabout history. So it's pretty unique in the alcohol industry. So trade practice prohibitions came about after prohibition because there was a lot of nefarious uh, things going on with larger corporations basically doing activities we call pay-to-play. And so this still happens in the world. Like grocery stores, you actually have to pay for that placement on the shelf to put your product there. 
So when you walk into a grocery store, the products that you have to select from aren't necessarily there because that grocery store thinks that that's the right product for you. It's because that large-scale food company paid that grocery store a fee to place their product there. So not only does the grocery store make a margin on the groceries that they sell, but they also get paid to carry that product. In the alcohol world, that's illegal. And it's illegal for a lot of reasons. We can go down that road. We could have a whole episode on that. <laughs> but basically what happens is that a package store, liquor store, may say to a wholesaler or manufacturer, you know, if you want to have this premium placement, because there's spots around a liquor store that everybody wants to have, because there's a lot of consumers that walk in who are not perhaps brand loyal or, or maybe just buy the first thing they see or unfamiliar with local brands. So that thing that they see in that particular spot, you know that they're going to buy it. And we have an old saying in the, in the beer industry, if it's cold, it's sold. So the, really the prime real estate in any liquor store would be refrigeration. So when you walk into a liquor store and you see things behind that door that's been stored cold, that's probably going to be the most likely place you're going to buy it. So that being premium real estate to sell your products means that somebody like Budweiser, and I don't mind naming them, will come in and say, you know what, I'll tell you what, we'll buy all these refrigeration things for you to store all this beer, and you don't even have to purchase these refrigeration units. We'll buy them all, but you have to carry the products we say on those shelves. So basically, trade practices are intended to maintain retailer independence so that large-scale manufacturers and wholesalers can't come in and determine everything that's going to be available in the store. Because obviously that would be counter to both public interest and also bad for small business and bad for competition. So that's one example. Another example is uh, someone's opening a bar or maybe needs to revamp a bar or something. And someone comes in and says, you know what, I will install a whole new draft system for you. 14 taps, beautiful. We'll take care of all the parts and labor. We'll fix everything, get it all set up. But you have to sell only beer that we sell on those draft systems. So those are trade practices that occur in the alcohol industry unless they are banned. So with a new ban, that means nobody can offer free things to a retailer in order to get whatever placement they determine is the placement they want. So I hope that explains it. Yeah, I think it, that does a good job. And uh, like you say, we could yeah. talk. We could go into hours about the history of tied houses and everything else. Oh but, yeah. Uh, the bottom line that the public should know is that this practices is designed basically to limit their choice and to jack up the profits of uh, the uh, the guys with lots of money in their pockets. AKA right. I mean, the, the, big, the big circular goal of it is that if I can control what's at a liquor store, then I put the other companies out of business. And then at that point I can charge whatever I want for my products. Cause I'm now the only person that exists. And that's what happened prior to prohibition. Yeah. So that's the reason that occurs in alcohol because people will do things like sell products that, you know, 20% of their value in order to take all that business. And when you're doing that, then people tend to over imbibe and do horrible things. And then, then people vote to ban alcohol. So we want to avoid that. But yeah, so there's just a lot of different reasons for it. And it, it is unique in the alcohol world. 
There's a lot of issues with federal enforcement on it, but you'll see things like, um, I believe it was Budweiser recently had to pay out a huge settlement because they were going into stadiums and you would see, of course, uh, Budweiser signs and advertising. And then, of course, you would go look at the draft selection and say, well, that's weird. There's only Budweiser on. So the idea that they would pay for advertising in the stadium and the stadium wouldn't put your products on unless you buy $120,000 in signage and advertising. So those kind of things are, they are, they do make it to national news and those are examples of federal trade practice violations. Well, good. I'm glad the regulations are coming together. Final subject, how's things looking for the Barley Wine Fest this year from your perspective? Funny you should say that. I was just meeting with our friends at Peak to Peak this morning. So it will be occurring. Let me make sure I have these dates correct. It'll actually be the first weekend in February this year. Okay. I had heard Uh, something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently... There's this, uh, what I consider to be sort of a dumb thing going on, which people aren't drinking in January. Um, <laughs> I'm with you on that which one. Which, again, yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to hold any punches. I don't think any month should go dry. That sounds terrible, especially January. Anyway, so, yeah, it'll be February 2nd and 3rd. Okay. But, yeah, so far the, the status sounds normal, three sessions, and, yeah. So should should be good. We'll be at the Dedina Center, and I'm sure more information will be coming out soon. We're all uh, we've got AK Crafted coming up here in Anchorage, so we're uh, kind of just working on getting that going and set up, and and we'll have more information coming out about that pretty soon. But yeah, so we've got a couple couple events. We got all sorts of fests going on right now. It's like fest season apparently. So. Oktoberfest, I think, is happening at Alaska this weekend. I'm I'm heading down to Juneau tomorrow for uh, Capital City Beer Fest, and then we've got uh, Boots and Brews in Fairbanks on October 13th, and then I think we have the Mighty Matsu Boo Fest coming late in October. I'm not exactly sure the date on that one. 28th. 28th, yep. And then we've got the Alaska Day Beer Festival in Sitka on the 18th of October. So, yeah, i got a lot of stuff coming up here. So if you uh, need to get out and drink, there's something happening. Except in January. Except, well, <laughs> yeah. Apparently you have to secretly drink at your house and then tell your friends you're going sober. <laughs> that works for me. Well, hey, Lee, yeah. I know you're a busy man, so I'll let you get back to filling kegs. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Always great to talk to you, Bill. Always appreciate your time. All righty. Take care. This is uh, Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai, Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Hi, this is Alexa Roden, longtime supporter of KDLL. When I think about local public radio, I think about community. KDLL keeps us informed and connected as a community, and I enjoy knowing that my donation helps them carry out that mission every day. If you support local public radio, donate today at kdll.org. Up next is this month's beer style segment, where we're talking about barley wine. With the recent release of this year's Termination Dusk by Midnight Sun, this seems like an opportune time to take another look at barley wine in our beer style segment. 
Barley wine is the strongest style of beer, and while it isn't always literally as strong as wine, it typically is stronger than beers in the style referred to as strong or old. The first beers we now think of as barley wines sprang from the British farmhouse brewing tradition, with its origins in the mid to late 18th century in breweries attached to the aristocratic great houses of England. At first, such beers were too expensive to produce on a commercial basis. Using new techniques to produce pale malt, these breweries began to brew these beers exclusively for the use of these wealthy households. These beers would be aged in wood for a year or more before serving and were brewed, quote, to answer the like purpose of wine at the table. This was considered important in the days when frequent warfare between England and the wine-producing countries of the South could interrupt wine supplies for extended periods of time. In 1854, Bass began production of a barley wine they called simply Number One, its label adorned with a single red diamond. This diamond was registered as Britain's second trademark following the still-familiar Bass Ale Red Triangle. Bass No. 1 was brewed continuously except for a 10-year break from 1944 to 1954 for 141 years until its discontinuation in 1995. It remains the standard, though sadly today only in memory, against which other British barley wines are measured. But while the heritage of British-style barley wines is long and distinguished, they are not the only interpretations of this classic style. While its roots are in British tradition, barley wine as a style has enjoyed a substantial second flowering among American craft brewers, beginning with the production of Old Foghorn Ale by the Anchor Brewing Company in 1975, followed shortly afterwards by Sierra Nevada Brewing's Bigfoot. For brewers, barley wine is a difficult and expensive beer to produce, requiring great amounts of materials, procedural vigilance, and time, which is the fifth vital element, along with malt, hops, water, and yeast, needed to produce a great barley wine. Like its earlier cousins' old and strong ales, barley wine is intended to be laid down, the fortitude of its flavors sometimes requiring a year or more to mellow into an enjoyable integration. Some versions, such as the legendary Thomas Hardy Ale, can be cellared for 25 years or more. What do they taste like? Barley wines in the British tradition are typically malt-forward, tasting slightly sweet with plenty of vinous and woody notes. American-style barley wines typically have a much greater hop presence. However, just because a barley wine is produced by an American brewery does not mean it will be in the American style. Plenty of American craft breweries produce English-style barley wines. Either style may also be barrel-aged. If the barrels used previously held some other spirit, that will bring added complexity to the flavor profile. Both styles have strength from 8% alcohol by volume to more than 18%. This high strength often means they will be served in smaller glasses. Additionally, some breweries are now producing Belgian-style barley wines, such as Turbination Dust. The name is a bit of a misnomer, since Belgium has no history of brewing barley wine. 
However, if you brew a barley wine with a Belgian yeast, you have to call it something, hence the name. What foods do they pair well with? The traditional match for an English barley wine is aged Stilton blue cheese, as the strong flavor of the cheese can stand up to the equally strong beer. Another choice might be a bread pudding, especially one with a sauce that utilizes rum or whiskey as its base. American barley wines are bitterer, so they might pair better with a slightly less assertive cheese, say a good cheddar, one aged for at least a year. Or try them with a steak and a burger that has blue cheese crumbled on it. Finally, they make a wonderful pairing with fruitcake. Yes, it may not be widely known, but it is true. You can actually eat fruitcake. And I'm sure a nice glass of barley wine would make it even more palatable. If you would like to try a local version of this beer style, there are many to choose from. St. Elias Brewing produces its award-winning moose juice barley wine each year. Cassock's Brewery offers its Buffalo Head Barley Wine on tap and in 22-ounce bottles. Midnight Sun Brewing in Anchorage offers both its English-style Arctic Devil Barley Wine and its Belgian-style Termination Dust Barley Wine in 12-ounce bottles. However, the White Whale of Alaska-brewed barley wines is certainly Anchorage Brewing Company's A Deal with the Devil. This beer has won numerous awards, is barrel-aged for at least a year, and clocks in at over 18% alcohol by volume. Bottles of it are expensive and hard to come by, usually requiring standing in line for hours outside the brewery on its release day. But if you ever get a chance to sample it, I advise you not to pass it up. To say that it is superb is an understatement, and it must be tasted to be believed. Whichever barley wine you choose, remember to enjoy them in moderation as they are indeed much stronger than your average beer. The Kenai Watershed Forum's Fireside Chats are back this fall at Kenai River Brewing in Soldotna. Join the Watershed Forum Wednesdays, September 27th through November 1st at the fire pits behind KRB to learn about a variety of topics. To see the full lineup of speakers, check out the Kenai Watershed Forum on Facebook. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here in KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. It's said that good things take time. This is true when it comes to certain beers, especially ones that have been lovingly aged in tanks or barrels before they're packaged and ready to serve. However, once the decision to drink has been made, it's often a quick affair. Bottles or cans are popped and poured into a glass. Tap handles are open as the beer slides into a mug. Then you drink it. End of story. However, True beer lovers out there know that there is a great deal to be said for taking some time in that next to last step, the pouring of the beer into the glass. A proper beer pour should take a bit of time, hence the slow pour. The slow pour is a generic term for various techniques that can be used when dispensing a beer to ensure proper head formation. However, under that general term, there are many variants with nicknames like the three-minute pour, 
the Stellar Artois pour, or even a seven-minute pour. Stellar Artois, the Belgian lager brand owned and distributed worldwide by Megabrewer AB InBev, has even created a nine-step process, or should I say ritual, for pouring. Unfortunately, as it states on their website, most of the bars in North America aren't equipped with the proper systems to serve Stella using the nine steps. So don't expect to see it everywhere you see Stella Artois on tap. If you would like to see it, there are plenty of videos on YouTube that demonstrate the nine-step pouring ritual. Charles Bamforth, the celebrated beer scientist and educator who is often called the Pope of Foam, cites Guinness as one of the best-known examples of the slow pour. When pints of a dry Irish stout are poured according to the brewer's suggestion, the whole process takes almost two minutes, 119 seconds to be exact, with the first half of that time going to build up a solid base of foam. Quote, what happens when you produce a lot of foam is that you're driving the proteins and bitter substances into the head, and when they get into the bubble wall, they will interact and begin to stabilize the foam, says Bamforth. If you don't produce much foam in the first place, you're not giving the molecules a chance to interact. As the name would suggest, the key to a perfect slow pour and getting that fantastic dome of foam is to take your time with the pour. But Bamforth reminds us that you shouldn't be timid in the process. With a standard beer tap, it takes a vigorous pour down the center of the bottom of the glass where the forces separate the carbon dioxide creating foam. Continuously doing this will keep building upon the foam while the liquid drops down until you achieve the ratio desired. What you should avoid is the weak sliding down the side of the glass pour from a standard tap. That won't achieve the proper results. Quote, you want to see the beer splash into the glass, according to Bamforth. There are other tap handle options, such as the side handle, which is more of a ball valve mechanism that controls the level of the foam or liquid that is allowed into a glass. This is more common in parts of lager-loving Europe and is often seen around this country attached to a Pilsner or Quell-branded tower. In fact, that famous Czech brewery often promotes various pours with increasingly dense levels of foam. Each different style of pour, tasted side by side by side, winds up tasting different from the others. Bamforth makes it clear that he hasn't done scientific trials to see whether the flavor of a beer is altered if it receives the slow pour treatment, but notes that, quote, the larger factor in play here is the foam and the psychology and beauty of it and the storyline the pour tells. Maybe there is a flavor difference, maybe it has lost a bit of its fizzy nature, and you get a mellower mouthfeel depending on how much CO2 has dropped out of the solution. But I think the visual triggers are more important than the taste ones. Here, Bamforth makes an excellent point. After all, drinking beer should engage all five senses. You drink with your eyes first, so the beer just looks great when it's served, but equal to that is the mouthfeel. When you knock out some of the CO2 from the solution, the body is more supple and it volatilizes the aromatic compounds, and that provides a pop in the nose. Taken all together, this significantly enhances the sensation of consuming a beer. 
from a nitro pour to the traditional CO2 pours to even cask ale poured through a beer engine outfitted with a sparkler, the slow-poured beer is dominated by creaminess. For the uninitiated, the idea of having to wait for beer to be poured can be strange, but it really takes only from a minute and a half to two minutes for the beer to be poured and ready. If you're pouring beer from a bottle or can at home, you can use a similar technique for a nice slow pour. Pour the beer straight down in the glass, allowing it to foam and generate a nice head. When the head rises to the top of the glass, stop pouring and wait 30 seconds to allow the head to subside a bit, then pour more beer into the glass until the head reaches the top again. Repeat this process until the bottle or can is empty and you have about two fingers of head on top of your beer. For most beers, this process should create a nice stable head which will persist leaving lovely lace lines on the side of your glass. While those who have regular access to these pours might swear by the value of waiting, it's unlikely the slow pour will become the default beer pour. Most people are not prepared to do this patient thing, says Bamforth. While that may be true, those people are missing out on one of beer's real hidden pleasures, the joy of the slow pour. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM to catch the show Pickled Beats, where I, your host, Josie Oliva, will be playing you a curated set of music inspired by an obscure subgenre or an oddly specific theme. In checking my records, I see it's been an entire year since our last beer gear segment. Apparently, the release rate of interesting beer books and gadgets has slowed a bit lately. Regardless, this month I've got a couple of excellent new book releases to discuss. First up is the second edition of The Complete Beer Course, From Novice to Expert in 12 Tasting Classes by Joshua M. Bernstein. The first edition of this book was released way back in 2013. There's been lots of beer under the bridge since then, and this new edition reflects that, being an almost complete rewrite. Bernstein introduces readers to must-know breweries, craft beers, and the industry's rising stars. Each chapter is devoted to a specific beer style and teaches readers how to taste and evaluate a wide selection especially new beers gaining popularity, such as sours and non-alcoholic varieties. Additionally, readers will find up-to-date information on the pandemic's effects on the beer world, expanded coverage of international beers, and the author's top picks for any beer drinking occasion. If your knowledge of IPAs is a little hazy, then this guide's for you. The 340-page hardcover book is profusely illustrated and would be of great interest to any beer lover, even if they already had a copy of the prior edition. It's listed with a $35 cover price, but is available for about $24 online. The second new book this month is a bit more obscure, but well worth seeking out. Its title is Cask, The Real Story of Britain's Unique Beer Culture by Des Damore. 
Cask beer played a crucial role in the rise of beer appreciation and remains a unique format delivering a drinking experience that can't be achieved any other way. Many drinkers and brewers still recognize its importance, and there's increasing interest outside the UK. This book by award-winning beer writer Des Moore introduces cask beer to a new generation, explaining why it's still important and what distinguishes it from other beer formats and the impact that this has had on the drinking experience. For the first time in a popular book, it examines the history of cask in detail, explores why it survived, and takes a close look at the way some of the leading producers make it today, dispensing with numerous myths along the way. Cask is published by Camera, the campaign for real ale, a British consumer protection organization dedicated to preserving two uniquely British institutions, Cask Ale and The Pub. This book is a paperback with 335 highly illustrated pages. I ordered my copy from Britain, but I see that Cask is now available on Amazon for just under $30 a copy. If you have even a passing interest in British Cask Ale or the past, present, and future of the British pub, you will find this book a fascinating read. Well, that's it for this month's show. This month's closing quote is from Robert A. Heinlein, the Dean of American Science Fiction Writers, who said, Be wary of strong drink. It can make you shoot at tax collectors and miss. Until next time, cheers. Be the worst when your palate be. Before-